Chapter 25 of The Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Jennifer Painter The Story of the World A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill Chapter 25 St. Dominic and St. Francis we have already seen how full of great men the 13th century was. There were great popes like Pope Innocent III, great kings like St. Louis of France and Edward I of England, and great emperors like Frederick II. But the greatest men of all in that wonderful time were two saints, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic. Both these saints founded new orders which were different from the older orders of monks, and did work especially needed at the time. The stories of the two saints are very much alike, and yet very different. St. Francis was born in a little town called Assisi, among the hills in the middle of Italy. His real name was John Bernardone, but his father, who was a cloth merchant, called him Little Francis, or the Little Frenchman, and the boy kept the name when he grew up. In those days there were not, of course, any big shops like there are today. Merchants travelled from place to place selling their goods, and Pietro Bernardone, the father of St. Francis, travelled a great deal in France. Pietro gained a good deal of money, and the little Francis was always well-dressed. He was a merry little boy with dark skin and laughing brown eyes, and he was always the leader in fun and mischief with the other boys of Assisi. But as he grew up into a young man, he grew very serious indeed. It was a time when men were growing more religious, and Francis could think of nothing else. His father was very angry once when Francis, who was helping him with his business, sold a great deal of cloth and gave the money to a priest to help him to build again his poor little chapel, which was falling into ruins. Pietro now said he would have nothing more to do with him, and took him before the Bishop of Assisi to have him disinherited, that is to say, that nothing he possessed should ever go to his son. Francis said that this only made him understand better than ever that he had no father except his father in heaven. He took off his clothes, saying that he would have nothing at all which came from his father on earth. The Bishop gave Francis a cloak, and for the next few years Francis lived as a beggar in Assisi, nursing the sick, and helping the poor. When he was a boy, he had had a great horror of the terrible disease of leprosy, but now he made it his special duty to take care of the lepers. There was a little old chapel in the flatland below the hills of Assisi. It was called the Chapel of St. Mary of the Angels. One day, when St. Francis was hearing Mass there, he suddenly thought of the words of our Lord in the Bible, which told the apostles to preach the gospel and to carry neither gold nor silver, nor money in their girdles, nor bag, nor two coats, nor sandals, nor staff. It seemed to Francis that these words were spoken to him, and though he was not a priest, he went up to Assisi and began to preach to the people. Other young men joined him, and when there were twelve of them all together, Francis said, let us go to Rome and ask the blessing of the Pope. And so they did, with bare feet and dressed only in rough brown frocks, 
with a rope tied round the waist for girdles, they went to Rome, and Pope Innocent III blessed them and agreed to their way of living, and St Francis went back happily to Assisi. Many of his old companions who had laughed at him and thrown stones at him when he first began to live like a beggar, now followed him. It was very difficult not to love Francis, for he himself loved everybody and everything. His great wish was to live just as our Lord had lived, and to be as meek and gentle as possible. Perhaps no one who has ever lived has been so nearly perfect as St Francis was. He loved poverty for Christ's sake, and was never happier than when quite without food. No Franciscan, as the men who joined the new order were called, were allowed to carry money. They had to beg for food, and if no one gave it to them, then they must go without, and be glad for Christ's sake. Yet St Francis was always joyful and even merry. He would sing as he tramped barefoot along the dusty roads of Italy, for soon the Franciscans began to go from place to place to preach. He said that poverty was his lady and his bride, and he loved her more than any man could love a wife. Franciscans were soon travelling in all the countries of Europe. They were called Friars Minor, or Little Brothers. Wherever they went, they lived as St Francis had taught them. All over Western Europe now, towns were growing up, and in most of them there were very poor people. It was in the poorest parts of the town that the Franciscans built their houses and churches. At first these houses were very plain, although the 13th century was the time when the great Gothic churches, with their pointed arches and beautiful carvings and statues, were being built. After a time, the Franciscans forgot some of the things St Francis had told them, and built fine churches too, but not at first. The Franciscans preached in plain, simple language, so that the people could understand easily, and so they taught and comforted the people whom the ordinary priests had often left quite to themselves. The older orders of monks had often become very rich by this time, and also they had their monasteries chiefly in the country. The Franciscans travelled too into far-off countries. St Francis himself went to the Holy Land and preached on the way to the Sultan of Egypt. Before the century was over, Franciscans travelled right across Asia and preached at the court of the great Khan, the ruler of a people called the Mongols. St Francis lived the last years of his life at Assisi, preaching and praying. His chief thought was of the terrible sufferings of our Lord, and before he died, in some mysterious way, his own hands and feet and breast had on them wounds like those made by the nails and lance in the body of Christ. When St Francis died, his body was buried at Assisi, and a great church was built above his tomb. On the walls there may still be seen wonderful paintings by Giotto, one of the earliest of the great Italian painters. In them we may see stories of the life of St Francis, and there is one very beautiful picture which shows St Francis taking the Lady Poverty for his bride. After the death of St Francis, the Franciscans still went on with their work, but in time they came to use money and to live very much like the older monks, though they always went on doing good work among the poor, and even in England today we may still find the friars of St Francis 
doing the work which St. Francis and his companions did 700 years ago. St. Dominic lived and did his work at the same time as St. Francis. He was a Spaniard and belonged to a noble family of Castile. Very early he became a priest and a regular canon. While on a visit to the south of France, he made up his mind to spend his life in preaching against the heretics there, who were called the Albigensians. Although these people thought that they were much better than ordinary Christians, they taught some very dreadful things. They thought that everything about the body was bad and that only the soul was good. They even thought it was a noble thing to starve oneself to death or to kill babies and so free their souls from their bodies. St. Dominic went about preaching better things to these heretics, and other young men joined him. They wore a white frock with a black cloak and were soon called the Preaching Friars. St. Dominic, like St. Francis, wished his friars to be poor, and for a long time they lived very much like the Franciscans. But their chief work was preaching against heresy. St. Dominic was very gentle like St. Francis. He would spend his nights on the stone floors of a church, only stopping in his prayers to go quietly to look at his friars as they lay sleeping and to cover them up more warmly. He could not bear to see other people suffering and would cry from pity. He had a very noble and beautiful face and his friars said that a heavenly light shone round his head. He had very beautiful hands. St. Dominic's preaching did not put an end to the heresy of the Albigensians, and in the end the Pope preached a great crusade against them. Simon de Montfort, the father of the great Earl Simon, who fought against Henry III, led this crusade, and in the end the Albigensians were nearly all killed, and so their heresy died out. But St. Dominic himself did not take any part in the crusade. He trusted altogether to preaching the truth, and hated the idea of fighting. Both the Dominicans and Franciscans often preached in the open air, and great crowds of people would gather round to hear them. The Black Friars, as the Dominicans were soon called, because of their black cloaks, were always good scholars, and very soon they became the greatest teachers of philosophy and theology in all the countries of Europe. The schools, like that at Paris where Abelard had taught, had now been turned into universities, in the universities, the teachers banded themselves together and got privileges from kings and popes. There were soon universities in most of the great towns where great teachers had taught in the 12th century. Scholars and teachers from Paris had come to England and set up schools at Oxford, which soon became a university too. Cambridge became a university soon after. In Italy and Spain too, the universities spread. Still, as in the old days, scholars flocked to the place where a great teacher of any subject could be found. At Paris or at Oxford, there were not only French or English students, but many foreigners as well. It was not long before the Grey Friars, as the Franciscans were called, and the Black Friars too, were found teaching in the universities. The greatest philosopher and teacher of the 13th century was an Italian Dominican friar called Thomas of Aquino, and now generally called St. Thomas Aquinas. He wrote a very wonderful book on philosophy and another on theology. He wrote, too, some wonderful and beautiful Latin hymns. 
The Franciscans too were great hymn writers, and Italian Franciscan, St. Bonaventura, wrote a wonderful Latin hymn called the Dies Irae, or the Day of Wrath, which is still sung in Catholic churches today. Another great Franciscan was an Englishman called Roger Bacon. The Franciscans studied the uses of herbs and medicines to help them to cure sick people, and Roger Bacon was the first man in the Middle Ages who said that people should try to find out all about the world and things in it by making experiments, that is, doing things and seeing what would happen, instead of just believing the teaching which was passed on from one generation to another. Roger Bacon's way of studying science has been followed now for many years, but in his own time his teaching seemed very dangerous. He was even kept in prison for 14 years, but was let out before he died. There were nuns, too, belonging to both the new orders. The Franciscan nuns were called Poor Clares, from the name of St. Clare, who was the first woman to follow St. Francis. She was only a girl of seventeen when she begged St. Francis to give her the habit or frock of a Franciscan. She belonged to a noble family of Assisi, and her father was very angry, but Clare was determined to lead the life she had chosen. Her sister Agnes and many of her friends and relations joined her, and they had their convent at the little church of San Damaniano, outside Assisi, which St. Francis had given his father's money to rebuild. There St. Clare lived with her nuns, dressed in rough frocks, like the friar's minor with bare feet, and there she lived the strictest of lives. The poor Clares lived always in their convents and gave up all their time to praying and working. There are many convents of poor Clares still. Then, too, people in the world who were married and had children, or for some other reason could not become monks and nuns, were joined to these orders and called tertiaries. They had to live as good lives as they possibly could and say certain prayers, and when they died they had the privilege of being buried in the habit of a Franciscan or a Dominican, according to which order they belonged. So St. Dominic and St. Francis and their friars played a very important part in the lives of the people in the later Middle Ages. The Great Poet Dante There was one other great man born in this century whose name is better known to people today than even those of St. Francis and St. Dominic. This was the great Italian poet Dante. We have seen how the North Italian towns at last made themselves practically free from the emperor's rule and governed themselves. Venice became a republic, governed by men chosen from a few noble families. Others, like Milan, soon fell into the hands of despots and were ruled by one family who passed on power from father to son for many years. The beautiful city of Florence on the river Arno was at first a democracy. In nearly all these cities there were quarrels always going on between different sides. Sometimes one side would be for the Pope and the other for the Emperor. And long after the struggle between Emperors and Popes was over, the names of Ghibellines and Guelphs, as the supporters of the Emperors and those of the Popes were called, went on. A little after the middle of the 13th century, there was born in one of the great families of Florence a little boy called Dante Alighieri. 
Dante grew up in the beautiful city of Florence and loved it dearly. He tells us himself how, when he was a boy of nine, he met at a children's party a little girl just a little younger than himself. She was dressed in a simple frock of a beautiful red colour, and from the moment he saw her, the boy thought her the most beautiful thing on earth. He always loved her, but though she grew to be a woman in Florence, he only met her again once or twice. She married another Florentine, and died before she was thirty years old, but Dante never forgot her, and he wrote about her afterwards in his wonderful poetry. He himself married a Florentine lady, and had four children. He had an important place in the government of his city, but when he was thirty-five, the party to which he did not belong got power in Florence, and Dante was banished from the city he loved so much. An order was given that if he came back, he should be burnt to death. His wife stayed in Florence, but Dante spent the rest of his life wandering from city to city in Italy. He was always welcomed and honoured by the rulers of other cities, but he was always homesick for his own beloved Florence. At last he was told that he could go back if he apologised and paid a fine, but he said he would never go back unless he was to be received with honour. He spent his years of exile in writing poetry. His greatest poem is called The Divina Commedia, or The Divine Comedy. It was the first great poem of the Middle Ages written by a poet in his own language. Dante, like all the scholars of the time, had been trained in Latin, which was the language used by all scholars, and of course the language of the Church. But Dante chose to write in his own beautiful Italian language. In the Divine Comedy, Dante described the life after death as it was imagined to be by the men of the Middle Ages. The great poem was divided into three parts, describing hell and the punishment of lost souls, purgatory and the sufferings of those good people who had died before they were perfect, and heaven and the joy of good people freed from all stain of sin. Dante described himself as passing in a vision or dream through all this, and it is Beatrice, grave and beautiful, who leads him through the courts of heaven. Everything which the great philosophers and theologians like St Thomas Aquinas taught about God and religion is to be found described poetically in this wonderful poem. The language itself is very musical and beautiful, and everyone who really wants to understand the Middle Ages should read it through. Dante died at last in Ravenna and was buried there. In later years the Florentines would have given a great deal to have his body buried in his own city, but the people of Ravenna would not give it up. One of Dante's great dreams was that all Italy should be joined together as one nation, but that did not come until nearly 500 years after his time. End of chapter 25